This is Wholesaling Houses Elite, the no fluff and BS podcast with tips and tricks to help you become an elite wholesaler. Our guest will spill the beans on what it takes to be the best. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to a new episode of the Wholesaling Houses Elite Podcast. This is your host, Max Maxwell, and I want to give you a little context of what you're about to listen to. Uh, This past week, I flew to Southern California, met with Scott Oots and Mike Yanker to do a pop-up, and we did it in a hotel, and surprisingly, 200 people showed up, and we were able to drop some gems on them, talk about um, their market with Scott, talk about some strategies that are working in 2019, and I was also able to get Scott Utes and Mike Anchor to Anchor to actually do a role play on a buyer and seller situation. So enjoy this. Take what you can. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Give me a thumbs up and a rating on iTunes if you're listening there. I'll see you guys next time. So I've done a couple of deals. Um, and I hear you guys talking about these huge spreads, right? Mm-hmm. My spreads haven't been so big. And I think one of the things I'm working on is to have a deal now where I think I just offered way too much. Can you talk about how you started learning, um, how, when you're talking about walking through houses, how did you, what was your approach to getting the information? Like, I didn't know anything about real estate. Like, you're saying you didn't know anything about real estate. How did you get that knowledge? Where did you, how long did it take? Kind of elaborate on that. So not all my deals are, are $100,000 threat. I want to make that very okay. clear, but we will get them. So. <clears throat> Basically how it works is the most important thing is not to talk about the numbers. The reason why earlier I was pointing my man out right over here for 200 grand is because he had no clue what he wanted. So now I get to plant the seed of what he wants. So when I'm at the appointment, the last thing I'm doing is talking about the numbers. I'm going to let you slip up and try to tell me what you want for the house. I already know roughly what I'm going to pay, but I don't want to talk about that. That's playing my cards. I'm not going to do that. So what you're going to do is go in there, talk about everything except for the price. If you say a price first, you're always gonna offer too much. You wanna say the price last. So now um, we're in there, we're talking, I know where you're going. We're already talking about you going, you're going, I think you're going to North Carolina with Max or something, that's why you're selling your house, right? So we're talking about when your flight is, um, when the moving truck is coming. In your mind, you're already there. Now I get you there, that's my job. So the price doesn't really matter to me. And that's how you're going to start getting bigger spreads. Right now, it seems like you're focused on the number. Don't focus on the number. The numbers will come on their own. Good answer. Talking about the numbers, what kind of form do you use to know what kind of number you're about to come up with? Uh, we take uh, ARV, so after renovated value, and then we work backwards from there. So we figure out uh, what the end uh, investor would need to profit, and then what we want to profit as well with how much repair would need to go into the house. Real quick on what you said. So to add to what what he just said, so it's very important something he said here. First take out what the end investor is going to want, then work back. Because I find a lot of people work the opposite direction and it's like, oh well, whatever's left they can take. Keep in mind, you're going out there and just talking to these sellers, right? You're signing a contract. These guys might be putting up five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars. They need to have a return on what they're putting out. If you tell them, hey, I'm gonna give you a 3% return in the end, they're gonna tell you to fuck off. I mean, you wanna build basically rapport with these buyers so they come back. The majority of our buyers are repeat buyers and they've been that way since the beginning because we do it that way. We take out potentially 
10% um, as a minimum for what they're going to make on their cash after repairs, after realtor commissions that they're going to pay when they resell it, knowing that most of them get it discounted, that's just a win for them. Um, we back all those numbers out. Then we say you're going to make 10%. Now, a lot of people say you're going to make a 10% return. Well, then they're going to pay 50,000 realtor commissions. They're going to pay closing costs potentially twice. Um, then they're like, well, it really is only a 2% return. Yeah. So it's important to make sure that you guys protect what the investor in the end is going to make. We're not out to screw them over. What do we do without them, right? They're here to buy houses and you want them to keep coming back. You tell them, I'm going to give you the houses, you buy them, just never try to back out of a contract with me. And, that, and that's, he's right, that's important. How many of you actually have went through or seen a HUD on a transaction in your local market? Right, because that's important. You gotta know what this stuff costs. You gotta know what closing costs are. You gotta know what it costs to sell it. A lot of people, I see a lot of deals that get posted and they say, oh, it's a, it's a $60,000 spread. Well, did you count for the 24 grand that you gotta give to the realtor when they sell? So kind of know the numbers and then back your way into it. And the same way he just div like divulged all the information and stuff that he's got to cut off of it is the same way when you start getting the brass and tax and you got to start negotiating these numbers. He said, Mr. Seller, I got to pay 50 grand to sell this thing. The money costs me this. I'm going to do X in repairs. So then the reality starts to kick in. They're like, oh, shit. You know, he's right. And because they look at it the same way somebody would look at it on Zillow. You buy it for two. You buy it for 100. You sell it for two, uh, 200. You made 100 grand. It, there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle of that, right? So it's not really that cut and dry. So you have to kind of educate them when you get to that point, when you are talking numbers, if there is that resistance. You got so to educate the person because guess who's the expert when they walk into the house? You are. So be the expert. Yes, ma'am. Does 70 cents on a dollar really work out here in this market? So that, that varies. So because we're in Corona um, and we go out towards San Bernardino, you could be looking at literally 50, 60. Uh, you come out like in a really good neighborhood in LA. So you need to have your mind open to different ways that uh, buyers can mess with that property. Can they add another unit? Uh, is it zoned R2, R3? Um, what can they put on that unit? Value add, right? Exactly, and that's gonna basically say what type of buyer you're looking for. Development buyers are a little harder to get, I'll be honest, because they take their time trying to make sure it's the right thing. And a lot of times you're like, well, I only got 14 days, right? So it makes it a little bit tougher on some of that, um, but have an exit plan. We have some land right now with a house on it that we looked and you could build four or five houses on it. We tried to get that thing moved. Like our spread would have been, I mean, whew, it would have just been amazing. Uh, however, as we're getting developers coming back to us, we got them interested, but they realized it was like 15 feet too narrow to be able to put the houses and have the driveways to go back to them. So basically, boom, they're all gone. Um, so, but now we have our exit plan, which is we can still make almost $100,000 wholesaling just the house. Oh, not bad. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's small, but I mean, food stamps might come into play, but it's, uh, it's bad, so. Um, is your ARV based on the Zillow or the MLS? We run, so basically for us, MLS, um, we may quickly look at Zillow and Redfin uh, and just average those two out if we're just quickly on a phone call with someone. But typically, like he said, we're not throwing numbers out to sellers. We're getting a number from them. What we're trying to look for on the phone calls is 
do you even have any interest in selling or are you just calling because you're retired and you want to waste my time? Mm -hmm. um, then once we, determine, uh, that, once we determine that this potentially is someone, we partner with some realtors. Casey, where are you? Back there. Uh, that's Casey Tavall, badass realtor. Um, so we partner with Casey. He gets all of our leads that want retail. We help him get those locked up in a listing. He helps us out with comps. So we got that out of our company because it just wasn't worth to pay someone inside to do that kind of stuff. So we run comps when we feel it potentially could be a deal. Back at the door. Hi guys, um, my name's Andrea. So I have a quick question. So we work independently for a brokerage firm. And pretty much we have a couple of subject properties that were, we ran the ARD based off of MLS. And um, we went in with the offer that the brokerage firm that we work kind of independently for, um, in Kuhutwit, pretty much. They don't like the number, like they try to get us to move on even more, which at first I thought, I was like, oh, this is like really low to offer the um, seller, right? But apparently there are investors that offer even lower than that. It's but, probably um, him. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, my fiance um, wrote me on Instagram and asked, um, gave Mike's information for you to like um, ask about numbers and stuff. So my question is, how do we get, because we have a buyer's list that we built, so we research and we have about like seven buyers. How do we get them interested in those subject properties that there is a potential sale on, but like just basically get them to want to purchase it? Because if they are interested in it, our brokerage firm will acquire the um, subject property. So real quick, you said zero seven, right? Buyers? Seven. We have seven, yeah. Okay, seven you need more. Okay. Um, Need seven zero. Yeah, I mean, I think we have almost nine hundred on our list. <coughs> now, there's our there's those few that reap. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. So there's ways to work through it. So did I send Mike's info back to you? Okay. Um, reach out to him, and he can kind of walk you through some of that. But basically, when you make an offer, I mean, you're gonna have low offers, right? Or you're gonna be giving a low offer. But you should have majority of the time already gotten the number out of the seller. Now, if you need it lower, you need it lower. Um, but you at least need to get that starting point with that seller. It's possible. We're out there offering what we need to offer them. We don't get every deal. Maybe somebody else does because they want a $5,000 spread. For us, we just say, hey, with our overhead, it's not really worth the $5,000 spread. Enjoy. Um, most of the time, that small of a spread falls apart and the seller comes back to us a couple months later and then we say here was our offer. Uh, and we will get some of those. So you can't be afraid to offer low but it's all in how you do it. So make sure you connect with him so he can kind of walk you guys through that because you have to do it right. You can't just throw out the number, hey uh, Mr. Seller, hey Bob, I, uh, I'm going to need your house $100,000 Is that good? Uh, I mean there's certain ways to do those how conversations. You do it, yeah. But it could be that your buyers just aren't the buyers for that property. So. Uh, yeah, I think I think I think one of the most difficult questions we get on a repeated basis is how do you run an ARV? And I think even as a realtor, there's I used to be a realtor back in the day. There's really no good formula other than actually knowing the market, right? Like knowing what things go for on that area. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it, uh, and that's where it comes into really diving deep and researching whatever neighborhood or whatever area you want to be good at. I mean, you should be able to pick out a street and be like, oh, yeah, I know something sold on that area for 400000 So, you know, if it's the same 2-1, then you should be somewhere around there. And then, then the devil's in the details. But you really kind of got to get good at things. And, and then when in doubt, just offer low. 
there's you can always come to you know come up when you need to, but don't be afraid to offer low. I mean, this is an old saying: if you if you if you're not embarrassed on your first offer, you offer too much, right? And the difference between us, obviously. So I, I went to North Carolina, spent some time with Max. Uh, he drove me around and showed me some of these houses he's got. We walked through them, and I'm looking. I'm like, you got this for what? Like Ten thousand bucks. I mean, when he offers low, he's going from like. 10 to like 9,800 potentially, right? So <laughs> take that percentage of a discount and put it into a $700,000 house and see what we're offering. So there's quite, there's quite the difference in markets. So when you look at a lot of people that are talking about the market they're in and how they make their offers, it's different market to market a lot, but the general concept mm -hmm. is the same. You should be a little bit embarrassed on your first offer. You really should be, um, but ultimately, Everybody has the same goal, no matter how big or how small your market is, how cheap or how expensive it is. We have an interesting market here in California. So if anyone's noticed the market lately, there's a lot of uncertainty in that. A lot of areas haven't seen that quite yet. So we have seen deals that we thought should be insane, and we're literally trying to pull five grand out of it. So we had uh, one that should have been 135, 140, $140,000 spread. All in contract, ready to go. Buyer basically tells us where to go. Um, <laughs> our next offers on the property at that time were literally like a $20,000 spread for us. So not saying the market caused that whole thing. I think this person just paid too much for the property, so that was a factor in it. But um, be careful as you're out there making offers right now because of the uncertainty on some things. Are the feds gonna raise the rate? Anything like that. There's so many things going on that buyers are trying to be a little bit more careful on what they're actually taking down right now. Because keep in mind, you may tell that buyer it's a good deal. Well, keep in mind, the day that property closes, it might be 30 to 60 days in rehab. Then they've got to list it on the market. They've got potentially you know, three months on market, say. Then they've got everything has to go perfect in escrow and title to have that thing close in 45 days after that. If anything falls apart, they're back to square one. Um, they take on a lot of risk, so they need to make sure they have a return to protect themselves, and it's your best interest to help them with that to make sure they come back to you again. In the back right there. Um, Two-part question. Uh, how much success are you finding working the absentee owner list, and how often do you run into tenant issues, evictions, and stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> You actually read our mind. <laughs> um, apparently there's a lot of tenants in California in the last six months. Uh, I don't know what the hell we did, but I swear like 80% of our deals lately have tenants that we have to provide 60-day notice to. Um, most of the tenants tell us where to go. Um, a, lot of, a lot of issues with tenants lately, so we ran into that quite a bit. Absentee owner, we've mailed it. I haven't mailed that list in probably... maybe like four or five months. Um, Why? It's not that it was a bad list. We have a, uh, which I'll call it my super secret marketing list, um, which was presented to me and I tried it and it's killing it for me right now. Um, but it is one person per area, so sorry I bought up everything in Southern California. Um, but that list cost me almost $17,000 a quarter. Um, 
but you're making 100 grand spreads. We're not sorry for you. It's, <laughs> but paying that bill, yeah. writing that check for 17 grand. That's, yeah, whatever. Um, uh. so, <laughs> It's, it's a good list, and we will go back to mailing it, but while this one I paid for is hot, I'm focusing on that. Um, so it, it is a good list. Vacant, uh, good list. Um, it's up and down a lot too, so I mean, there's different types of all those things. Different, uh, you can pull it from different sources and you get different information. So I mean, every list you pull, there's always that certain amount that falls out of it because it's just crap data, right? Nothing's perfect. I think. For in, in my market, and really many any market, the the absentee owner list is basically somebody that owns a house that's not living it. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily show distress or anything like that. And I think a lot of people you hear that that's the first thing you hear, right? Go get a mail absentee list and mail it, call it, do whatever, however you reach out to them. But remember, there is no signs of motivation. We're problem solvers, and just because I don't live in a house I own doesn't mean I have a problem. Now, yes, the window of opportunity may open, and your letter may come at the right time, but it necessarily is not something where you're going to be getting massive amounts of calls because there's not an identified problem. Most, of pe most people that look at you know, Scott business, my business, they look at it in the sense that you have to do what we do. We, we have employees, we have all these things, we have to generate X amount of deals a month. It has to happen. For most of you, one deal a month, one deal every two months will make you leave your W-2 job and change your life. So the reality is you don't need to look at it as blast marketing or big marketing. You actually need to go deep. And that's why in my company I have a wide list and a deep list. So going deep into a problem that you learn and you can be able to solve will change your life. You know, when I went deep, I went deep into probate and taxes, and that's where I started earning all my money, eventually growing my team to where, yes, we have five or six, seven different types of marketings we go after, but you, you, you're not at the point where the absentee list is something you need to go after. I know it's easy to find, you can get it on list source, but it's really not budget friendly to go after that list because the, the return, the response rate is so low, but you're looking at somebody like, he can put out $30,000 worth of mailers in a week. You can't. So you need to go an alternative route. He's got, a, he's got an ax, you need a scalpel. You need to go in this business with a scalpel and figure out how to change, fix small problems. And once you fix these small problems and you fix enough of them, then you can go get you a hatchet and just start swinging. And let's talk about, so to find some of those, uh, list stacking, if people have heard about that. So you take multiple lists. So for, say, for instance, you have your absentee owner. Uh, you have a foreclosure list. You have a divorce list. Try to find somebody that's potentially across all three of those lists. Correct. They're an absentee owner. They're in foreclosure. And they're going through a divorce. So that person has potentially those three distress points. Most likely, that person is going to want to sell to you more. Um, there is a software called Property List Manager. Uh, it's a good software. It allows you to upload all your lists to it. And then you can choose, I want to see anyone that has two or more, anyone that's on two or more of my lists, and it will run the report for you, and you can literally click send to Mailhouse. I don't know what their mail prices are. Anytime you click to send as convenience, most likely you're it's paying more. more yeah. um, but Property List Manager does help with that a lot. Um, I don't know what the cost is monthly on it. 100 bucks, I think. I don't think it is anymore. I, I don't okay, know. Sorry. But it depends on how many records you put in, too. That can add up quickly. Um, but it does help you with that. Or if you're good at Excel, build one. Build something you can throw in all your lists on all the tabs and have a master tab that you can just say, hey, tell me anyone that's on these things. 
Um, and that's called going deep, you know, because you're, you're really trying to solve one problem. So you don't need to go after all of them. And you, I really want to keep that in the people's mind frames. Like if you're not, if you're not at the point, like if, you're, if, you, if you come to our mastermind session, you'll understand that's a whole different conversation. We're talking about using the big ax and the hatchet to do things, but you guys are down here and it's not bad to be down here. It's actually, it's, it's more an advantage to be down here because you can do things that we can't do as fast as we can do them. So take advantage of being a one man, one woman operation and diving deep on problems where you can spend five, six hours reading about I don't know, a tax code that you can find a loophole on something and take advantage on that. You know, I've seen people do that and make millions of dollars on one small thing. So when you're doing, when you're in this business, when you're thinking about it, think about it from the perspective that you only need to go deep. Don't go wide yet, because wide costs money. Deep just takes time. And if, you're, if you have the time right now, invest that into going deep. All right, you were right here and then we'll, right, yes sir. Are uh, bandit signs still relevant, and also, um, should you get them custom made or? or uh... In my market, yes, they work. I've I've tried many different signs: the small ones you put on telephones, the ones you put in the ground, handwritten, printed. Ones that's always worked for me was the 12 by 24 hand, uh, sorry, 12 by 24 printed double-sided stakes you put in the ground. That's my market. But those type of things. Um, different from market to market. You might not even be able to put them, they might not last 12 hours out here. I don't know. For me, I can get a couple weeks out of them sometimes. So it really just depends on testing. You ever see the telephone <laughs> poles down in LA? Yeah. They have like 50 of those things and they're layered like four deep. So yeah. people are, I'll, I'll say that a lot of competition, they're nasty. You'll see they take a Sharpie and change a three to an eight. Uh, they don't want people to come. <laughs> I have not done that. Uh, You've heard about it. Basically, like, with so many signs on one pole, I mean, is, it, is that saturation really, are you going to get anything from it or not? Um, we had a ton of bandit signs, and we used to use them out towards, like, San Bernardino, stuff like that. Um, but we always found we needed, like, two people to go do it, too, because you don't want to leave your car running in some of those areas when you hop out to put it up. Um, <laughs> So that's, that's kind of the thing. I mean, but it worked, we, right? It, 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 worked. Was, it was all right. Um, we didn't do it consistent enough because we had money coming in from other channels that didn't make sense to pull somebody out of the office. So one thing I am very good at is looking, what do I pay this person? So what are they worth per hour based on what they bring into my company, not what I pay them? If I send them out to go hang bandit signs for four hours and that person might be paid 20 bucks an hour, but in turn they bring in $50 an hour for me, is it worth... $50 an hour to have this guy go and hang up bandit signs because they're not doing the job they should have been doing to bring in the 50 bucks. So food for thought as you do that, but bandit signs are a good way to get started. Uh, I know a guy that used to do the handwritten ones, throw them all out in like uh, Fontana, San Bernardino, uh, and he definitely had a lot of calls and stuff coming from him. So. Are you guys finding uh, you're actually Wholesaling versus double closing a lot of your deals, and then does your when you're wholesaling, do your do your sellers know that you may not be the end buyer? So we make it very clear in our contract um, that we basically can assign the contract, so they know that it's there. We make them acknowledge that, um, and then when it comes to closing, I would go as far as saying almost a hundred percent are all assignments, but there are that select few that in cases we have to do things with. 
So we have one right now in Riverside. We're buying, we're buying it from an agent because of some issues. So we have to actually close on it. So we're closing on it and then selling it. But we've done that in the past. But the thing about double closing that's tricky, you have to bring your funds to close. Um, so that's the legal way to careful. do it. That's the yeah. legal. That's the legal way. My attorney won't ever do a double close. Yeah, and I mean, they'll we'll close with our own money and then do it. I just didn't know how often you were doing that versus. Well, a lot of people what they try to do, do you, with the double close, they try to take. So you got the A to B transaction, so yeah. the seller to you, B to C transaction, you to the buyer. They try to have the buyer put their funds in, use those funds to pay for the first transaction. If you find an escrow company that does that, great. But when someone finds out about it, they gonna shut them down. You don't yeah, yeah, want to be yeah, around. They for that. do it, but you um everyone has to be disclosed. Like everyone has still to doesn't change yeah, a lot. You know, so the, the, you the simple thing about reason why my attorney won't do it, he basically says, and if you find people that do it, that's great. Use them. It's not your license or anything at risk. I don't. Basically, what happens is, you you a, a, a escrow account needs money in and money out. It, you can't have two transactions and only one deposit. It just doesn't make sense. So you can't, it, it just doesn't add up. When you say, okay, here goes 100,000, but it two how did that do? It just doesn't add up. So they're risking their stuff. What, what's the reason you close and then sell? Is it just out of habit from the beginning? I, in, the beginning it, in the beginning, I sometimes I was using an escrow company that would disclose to the seller what my assignment fee would be. So if it was over $20,000, $15,000, the assignment, I would double close because it's going to cost me four grand, five grand, maybe I can get away with the sale, I'll still make 16,000 versus them knowing I'm making 30. Because if someone was, uh, saw I'm making three or five grand, they didn't care, mm -hmm. but that's what happened. I, as for companies now, I really try to use that the seller never knows because it's on the buy side anyway. Exactly. So that was ideal. But sometimes I'm forced to use the seller with, no, I have a friend and I want to, for whatever reason, I'm using some other escrow company. Yeah, one thing I would say, which is important, I'm, I don't know if you do the same thing, I only work with my attorney. There's no exceptions. It's different here, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here, in, where in my state, I only work. So if I'm making the offer, it's closing at my attorney's office. I, if, if the buyer's coming, it's working here. Because we ha I make the rules that, hey, if you want to buy from me, this is where you close. Because the original contract actually says this is where the closing is taking place. Right. So you're, I'm signing you this contract, which means you have to follow everything this contract says. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Mm -hmm. So that's how we get away with it. I was actually going to buy a property. We closed on a property yesterday while I was here. I was going to buy it because it's a new buyer and we were making like 26, 27,000. And I didn't get to meet the buyer. And I was gonna buy it, then turn it in the morning, turn around and sell it to him in the afternoon, come to find out he's signed it for $10,500 more anyways. And he's a, you know, he's a big buyer in town, so I just said, hell, I'm not, I'm not double closing it. I said, just, just assign the thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, everybody was cool, but you always, it's always good to set the expectation for the seller. Let them know, listen, I'm a real estate investor. We agree upon a price, that's it. Now, I, me and my buddies might work on this house together. I might take it down myself. Hell, I might even just sell it to one of my friends right away. If you put it in that small common, they don't care. Sometimes a seller, though, is like HUD. And you have to be the one. Well, yeah, that's different, yeah. And then, like, uh, when the property you referred us to in Washington, we actually, how they got around it is they actually, we bought a corporation yep. that was on a contract, and we don't want, now own a corporation even though we sold the house. Yeah, yeah. it's a good way to but, do it. Yeah. yeah, but that was one reason why if we were, they, you have to close on it, you can't assign mm -hmm. those. 
yeah. with the with the assignments. I mean, we were able. So now our escrow company does not disclose anything to the seller. They just know basically, hey, here's your buyer, and it's not our name, right? Um, but then it comes down to the assignment fee. Our buyer does see that, not the seller. So that's good, but just with the escrow company, I mean, we don't typically have problems with that. A lot of times they like to say, hey, I'd like to use my escrow company. We say, well, listen, you know, you're gonna have to pay closing costs at that point then. I can do them for you if we use my escrow company because I give them 100 transactions a year. So, I mean, for them, they basically do my escrow for almost free, right? So I doubt your escrow company is gonna do that. So I'll make that deal with you, but closing costs are gonna be, I mean, just freaking inflate them. Right. Closing costs are gonna be somewhere around 10 grand or so, I mean, that means that's coming off your offer. Um, if you want to do that, we can do it. And then most of the time it's like, oh no, we're good. Um, and we can do an introduction call to our escrow company. That helps a lot. So we can basically say, hey, here's their contact information. I call our escrow officer and say, hey, you're gonna get a call from this person. Tell them how good you are. And then usually there's no problems after that. So. Perfect. Right here. And, uh, the Indian Empire, the kick-ass place and best. I was working with uh, Vacant uh, for about a year. I traded my time for some of her equity. I gave her 50,000. I made 75,000. She was happy. I was happy. I signed it over in Bloomington. You just need to talk to folks. That's it. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's mm -hmm. talk about something here with him real quick. So he's been in my meetup for a while. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you been doing this? Since you started it, man. Okay. So, what, do you, what did you tell me? At, so at the last meetup, him and I got into a little bit of a battle. Uh, he, he cornered me, literally in the corner. And he's good at that, watch out. Uh, but he's sitting here talking and he acts like he, acts like he has no business. No business, I'm, I'm not making any money. What the hell are you making per month? What, what did you just do? I mean, so... Uh... <laughs> just give me the number. What did you just do? Okay, I'll tell you what I did. Uh, I, I closed on three deals. I made twenty-two thousand. Uh, I also put another house on the contract just last night in Emmett at nine thirty. Didn't you? Didn't you say it was like almost thirty thousand dollars? Yes. Okay. So he comes to me acting like he's on food stamps to me, <laughs> and we're having a conversation. You probably Great could guy, be. By the way, I can give him crap. Uh, but I mean, you look at what's possible. When did you physically get your first deal? I think. Physically, when I, 2017, everything before that was a fee and mm -hmm. was just kind of learning experience. But okay. I really started like get got going in 2017. Everything before that was okay. just door knocking for like Home Investors of America, mm -hmm. bird dogging, getting in front of homeowners. Mm -hmm. About a, about 25 a day, 100 a week is mm -hmm. what I was doing to try and get this information. So listen to that. So he's getting these deals and he's going out and door knocking, right? So. There's so many ways to do things. Thank you, by the way. There's, there's so many ways to do things that other people in this room could be doing. If you're knocking on a door and you're not getting far enough with it, there's someone to talk to. He told me his process the first time I met him. He goes, I meet up every month. And the first time I met him, he walked me through that process and he's, he's got a good way to get in the door. So these are the people you need to network with, not just us, right? I mean. Everyone in here is doing something unique, and I guarantee you there's something in this room, multiple things in this room that we could learn that we don't even know because you guys are doing something different than we're doing. Raise your hand if 30 grand a month would change your life. That's what I'm saying. So, you know, you should try to build something that small and then scale. Mm -hmm. you know? Thank you for sharing the info, Scott. I appreciate that. Absolutely.
Uh, all the way in the back. Yes, sir. Uh, hey, Max. How you doing, sir? Absolutely. Scott, Just for you guys, like, be real creative. I got real creative with my band signs, using social media, sending it out to my friends, asking them, hey, if I close on a deal, $1,000 in your pocket. So it's various ways you guys can utilize your platforms. Your friends are always on social media. Yep. So again, utilize it. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, right there, you had your hand up. Go ahead. Hi, guys. Hello. My name is Olivia. Um, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. Cool. So, you know, um, Carolina. I watched you guys' um, YouTube, and I was like, okay, he's in California. Good. So I was like, okay. So I actually have land under contract right now that's, like, really, like, it's like my first piece of land. I've never worked with land before. I'm like nervous. Okay, can I do this? So a lot I've learned so far. It's in Paris, California, 2.24 acres. I'm like, how am I going to get the comps on this? Like, what do I need to do to figure out what this land is worth? So the seller wants $100,000 for it, right? I'm trying to figure out if that's even like a good number. Like, you know, is that a good number? Like he said, his utilities on there. He said that, um, you know, you can put mobile homes on there. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what the ARV is going to be on this. So I asked my realtor friend and um, he, he pulled everything from the MLS. He's pulling like comps, figuring out what the ARV is, right? So I'm trying to uh, figure out what the ARV is. So the ARV pretty much came up to $50,000. So I'm like, how do I figure out how to tell the seller that his land is not worth $100,000 and that, you know, we really need to come down to where there's like a spread for me to like so make something. So just simply ask him, how did you get to that number? Yeah. And he's trying to sell you on speculation. Yeah. And you yeah. can't buy on speculation. Oh, you can put mobile home. Well, why don't you do it? Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a good, I ask that question a lot. So what, so if it's, the, so if it's that, why don't you do it? And the reality is, is he's trying to sell you on a speculation and you have to say, well, 100,000, how did you get it? How did you come up with that number? And he probably can't tell you. That's no different than a seller saying, oh, you can add on 1,400 square feet. So you're going to pay me that price now. Yeah. So it doesn't work like that. You add value to a property to get the return. He wants you to pay for the value before you actually put it on there. Do you, do you know how he got the property or how you attained it? So um, he bought it in like 1988 for like $10,000 and he's just never done That sounds like a great number, 10 grand. <laughs> Maybe 12, right? Because you get a little return on your investment. So at this point, you know, I try to see like who would be interested in it. And so far, like, you know, I didn't really get like good feedback because my spread, the spread, the numbers just weren't there. The numbers weren't Have you asked him why he has, what, how did you come upon the lead? I saw this distressed house. Okay, it's a really weird story. I saw this distressed We're house. We're in real estate. It's all weird. weird. LA. That's like in the middle, like South Central LA area. Like trash, like trash outside the house. So I asked, I take my daughter to the babysitter across the street. I was like, whose house is that? You know, I need to go figure out whose house. She was like, it's the man next door's house. I was like, okay, I'm going to go talk to him. I talked to him. He's like, I'm not selling that house. I'm leaving it for my grandkids. I'm like. They'll sell it. It's like homeless people like living. He lets homeless people live there. It's just trash. I don't even understand how the city allows him to keep it like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I tried to convince him to like sell it. I was like, would you take 150 for it? Like the, you know, just, just take 150. I just threw a number just because 
I slow bought him, like, would you take 154? He was like, yeah, most likely. <laughs> and then here go his, like, little friend in the background saying, no, the land is probably worse. probably going to get him to sell it because ultimately that's what I came there for. But then he said he wanted to sell this land and I'm like, I can't sell land. I'm like, what? So I tried to sell it and then, you know, now I'm kind of like, you know, in between like, is this a deal or is this like, you know, like, should I even, you know, I don't know. I would, I would just, I would, you said you put it under contract? No. I did. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Just say, did you did you build in a due diligence or an inspection period or some type of? Yes, thirty days. So okay, so I would just say, hey, you had that you had that ability the whole time. <laughs> so so um, I, I I would go back to him and just you know say after doing some research, man, your property's not worth a hundred thousand. I would I'm interested to find out how you would you know get away with it. But I would buy both that property and that property there for 175 or so. You know, pull. Trying to combine it together, right? Even though you, because you're spread, I'm pretty sure South, I'm not sure of the market, but I heard that market's changing like crazy where it's like coming along, right? Well, you have to be careful with land right now, especially in some of the outskirts, because it is definitely a harder time to move land because people don't know what's going to happen, you know, a year and a half, two years from now. So ultimately, those people are saying, well, okay, if I buy this land, I'm going to develop it. By the time I get permits, do all the dirt work, do all the stuff. I mean, it could be a year till they even break through. That's how you have to explain it to him as well, too. Okay. Like, you even, do you know what's involved with getting right. permits? Because mm. it's just so easy. Oh, you can put mobile home on there. Say, say this, how about you sell me this house right here, then you go develop that, that land in Paris since it's so easy. He's like, where am I going to live if she puts me out of this house? He's like, I'm going to go, he's 85, he can't do anything with that house. So I need to come up with something for him to be like, ooh, where are you going to live? You need to live. Tell him, give him 150, tell him to move to North Carolina. I can get him a nice house. <laughs> <laughs> right, Scott? <laughs> What would you do, Mike? So, all right. So you already got yourself in the door. Which you don't want the land. Let's just be honest. Nobody wants. Nobody wants the land. <laughs> so, the, but the land, the land is how you're talking to them. Right. So you yeah, do want good. the land. Yeah, it does. Right. 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 So they know it's locked. Right. So. Oh, it wasn't locked. Yeah. You want to focus on this house, but what you're going to do is solve the problem for the land. And right. you can't purchase it for a hundred thousand. You can't be upside down fifty grand. So what you're gonna do on that is you're gonna go talk to him, build rapport with him so he loves you and wants to sell you this house over it. here. Okay, so perfect. Okay. So stay stay on that good side. Okay. If you come back and say, Hey, this land you gotta do this and you gotta do that and you gotta do this with a piece of shit, you're never gonna be able to sell it, you're not gonna be on his good side anymore. So you need to solve that problem. What you okay. need to do is find a good realtor that could list it out there. I can't move it, I screwed up. I'm an idiot, it's my fault. Here's a realtor, I'm gonna put it on the market for you, I'm still gonna get it sold, I don't know what it's gonna pull, but I'm not even gonna make a commission off that land. I just wanna help you get rid of that. Yep. Smart, yep. smart. So now you right. solved the problem okay. for the land, and now you're gonna buy that house. Yes. And you got my email address, in case you don't, email me, we'll buy it. <laughs> that, that house is a deal, y'all. Keep working the angle. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, right. I have a question for Scott. Well, I'm from so you guys know that area. Yes. Um, you said you had your secret list that you target. 
What else are you targeting? What are your top three, top four that you guys like? Literally right now, I'm targeting one list. That's it. So if you were in my shoes, mm -hmm. I'm door knocking, I'm driving for dollars. I'm a realtor, so I do all that anyway. Yep. What list would you start off with? Uh, you definitely want to go distress. So, so many people mail like pre-foreclosures yeah. and things like that. I'd shift over and mail more of a trustee sale. So, you want it, so people can blow this off for years. It can take years for the foreclosure to go through. If you switch to something like a trustee sale, they have that hard date that their house is going to the courthouse steps. Um, I mean, that changes sometimes, but basically those people all of a sudden got that motivation that they may actually want to sell that thing. Um, but when you do trustee sales, so properties that are in foreclosure, and for everybody to know this here, any property that has a default recorded on it, your contract has to be, there's a state contract for people in foreclosure. Um, do you remember what that was called? I don't remember the name. Somebody say? Three day right of rescission. There you go. Three day right of rescission. Uh, that, that contract, you can just Google it. Um, you need them to sign that contract. It gives them the ability to back out of the property, back out of the deal for three days. Um, that sucks, uh, but if you don't use that, then if anything goes to court, even after you close it, five, six years down the road, mm. the seller says, well, shit, I should have made so much more money on that property. They find out that you didn't use that, you are liable for that. So they can come back after you. So, You've got to make sure that that contract is used for anyone that has a notice of default recorded. So important. So we actually just found this out not that long ago, um, and that's not good for us. Uh, but <laughs> see, even 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 a big company like this, and that's what I like about this business. Nobody that's ever going to try to like help you out is perfect, man. This business is forever changing. There's so many moving parts. We fix so many problems that even guy that's doing three, four million dollars a year is like, we just found out something that uh, we're probably liable for some things. And then he's sharing it with you so that you don't have to go through that same thing. So just, man, I, that's what I love about this business is forever teaching me something. That's why it's interesting every day. Yes, sir. And then you. Yeah. Did you get it? So, when you start requesting those type of lists, there's a Freedom of Information Act, FOIA. Uh, this is something that could be gold if you get it worked out properly. Um, basically, there's certain data that cities and counties have to provide. And most of the time you call them, hey, I want the code violation list. Hey, I want the water list. Oh, we don't have it. We, don't, we, can, we can't look it up that way. We can't run a report. We need the address. Don't test me. I will send you a list of every address you have in your city, and you can look them all up there. Um, Freedom of Information Act is, uh, if you look up, I think it's like foia.gov, uh, I believe. Um, otherwise, you can just Google it. And it shows kind of the things you can get and how much time cities have to respond. When you request it, if you word it perfectly like, hey, I want this list, the Freedom of Information Act says I can get this list, and it says you have three days to reply with this list, and you can charge me a fee for it. Um, but there's even rules on what they can charge you with fees. Mm -hmm. So if you do that right, that causes a scramble. Because most people just say, hey, can I get this list? And they say no. Uh, if you do it the right way, 
and you follow that process, they have to provide it. Um, as long as you're not asking for something that obviously invades privacy or something like that. Safety uh, reasons. But, exactly. But also remember, I believe the Freedom of Information Act does not give you, you cannot request it to use it for marketing reasons. Make sense? So you can't request a list because you're going to mail to it. That's not, that's not what it's for. It, you have to, you can use it in any education form. You can say, hell, you're making a YouTube video about whatever the list is about for data reasons, right? But you can't say, hey, I'm a real estate investor. I'm going to mail these people to see if they want to sell their house. Have a friend request a list and sell it to you for $5. Uh, or just really make a YouTube you video about it that nobody watches and then you weren't lying. <laughs> uh, did, did you have, was, yeah, go ahead. Hey Max, um, I can say honestly that I'm most inspired by your wholetale projects. Mm -hmm. um, so in the event of a long distance wholetale um, in a virtual market that I operate in, mm -hmm. would you recommend going with a project manager or just a general contractor? That's tough, man. I really don't trust contractors, especially when they're long distance. You can't trust them when they live next door to you. So I would maybe try to find somebody that is separate, that is incentive based upon the project completing on time and, and the spread, right? Um, depends what market you're in, what your virtually wholesale is, that number could be pretty low. Like if somebody's incentivized to watch over your project and it could be five grand. I don't know what your spreads are going to be, but that can be if that project can be done in a month, five thousand dollars in a lot of states is a lot of money. Um, so something somebody you can build rapport with. Um, also, they have these wireless cameras that run off of 4G network that don't also need batteries, and you can have those put in houses that are being constructed, and you can know when the contractor shows up, when they leave, what they're doing, and stuff like that. It basically runs off a battery pack that lasts a couple months. It also runs off of uh, like a 4G internet card or something in it, and you can watch and literally see what's going on in the house at all times. Um, that's how I know some people that might manage projects like that. Um, but yeah, I, you can't really trust a contract unless you have a solid relationship with them. Where's it at? It's in Cleveland. Cleveland. So what you can do- $5,000 is a lot of freaking money in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> so you have, you have networks, right? So start trying to find investors that are in that area. Start finding investors that are actually doing a decent job in their business there. Mm -hmm. So, and then reach out to them and say, hey, I know you probably don't want anything to do with this, but you know, maybe if you have a dispositions manager or something that I can, it's not gonna be a regular thing. Maybe I can shoot him 500 bucks if he keeps an eye on this project for me. Something like that, so. Definitely use the people, people around you in the, in the game as well too. So you don't have to train them. Mm -hmm. Um, can you guys shine a little light on like your cold calling efforts? Uh, how much time do you have uh, like, your agents calling? Like, mm -hmm. How much time do you vote to that? So cold calling agents are typically calling anywhere between 30 to 40 hours a week. Um, 30 hours uh, is really kind of where they're at. So the dials they're making and stuff, I wouldn't be able to tell you that right now because I just don't know it. Um, cold calling, sometimes when you do it in the mass, it's a long-term game. I mean. As you start people out, a lot of people stop cold calling mm -hmm. three weeks in because they're like, I didn't get any, right? These are nurturing leads. So as you start getting leads in from cold call companies or people doing it, 
you got to give it some time. You got to give it four to six months. Got to work um, it to make sure that you actually start closing some things on these because these people just got a one-time contact, and most likely if the person was overseas, they weren't exactly completely clear. So there's a lot of leads to come through. You kind of just throw away, but. Uh, give it time, 30 hours a week with a caller, you should definitely be seeing some leads in, as long as the skip trace data is good, because mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of companies out there that just so crap. shitty data, yeah. So, you have a, a suggestion for skip tracing? Well, we're gonna fight on this, because we both have skip tracing companies, <laughs> so. So in, Octo in October, we bought we bought REI Skip, because our REI Rail company bought REI Skip. So um, that's, that's, what, that's the data I use. And right, and, and as big as his business is, we start these things out of necessities, right? And as much that as he was skipping, it made sense for him to have his own company as well, too. Exactly. So, I, I hate choosing who goes next. Like I don't, I, like I don't know how they do it in the White House. Just who goes next? Um, just start asking your question. Go ahead. See, that was great. Give an example of the subject two when it comes to numbers and how you work that deal. Um, the question for the people in the back is how do we work a subject to deal? Yeah, so so here's the thing. I don't do subject twos where there's zero equity. I'm not looking to acquire property subject two for a long-term situation. I never really want to hold a subject two more than a year. I, lo I don't like it more than three months, to be honest with you. Where I've been doing subject twos, and this is an advanced strategy once you actually start having cash or you have private lenders, I like taking a deal that necessarily is not a home run for a wholesale, right? So I'll give you an example on a house. Um, there was a house, 110 Twinwoods. The, the, the homeowner was never late on their mortgage. They just built another house and they moved to the coast. And the mortgage that they had was, there was a balance of around 75,000. The house is worth around 165. Um, and it was in decent living condition, just some repairs. But I, they didn't. They wanted to walk away with thirty thousand. That was their hard number. So when when we heard that, it it didn't make sense for one ten to one sixty five as a wholesale deal. Who's going to eat? Who's going to repair it? You get what I mean? So then we said, listen, listen, homeowner, you really want? You really looking for thirty thousand? That's what you really want from us? And like, yeah. I said, how about I give you the thirty thousand? But Let's wait on Wells Fargo getting paid. And we'll pay the mortgage each month. We're gonna fix the house up and put it on the market and hopefully try to get some profit. They're like, oh, that made sense. So we brought them in and we sat down, we talked to them. We agreed on 110. We gave them 30,000 at closing, right? It was all private money. We gave them 30,000 at closing. And then they had, we had a balance on the mortgage of whatever. It basically equals somewhere around 110. Then we had paid the 800, and I think it was $36 mortgage every month. And we had it for like three months, and we should have had, we had it two months too long actually. But we went in there, we cleaned up the yard, uh, we paint, we added carpet to a bedroom that didn't have carpet, we changed out the toilets with the you know the buttons that go on the top. It just looks newer, hundred bucks at Sam's or something like that. And we cleaned up the yard and did that, and then we put it on the MLS at full retail. You see, so the property is in our name. We put it in a trust. Um, that's how we keep the property. We pay the mortgage payment, and the only thing we're out of pocket is the thirty thousand dollars, and then the eight hundred something. The rehab was like three grand. 
So you see the money we have in it? That's like 15 grand here. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have, I have people on staff, so I have a carpenter, uh, my younger brother works for me, so I have a lot of people that work for me because we continuously do these projects. So I have people on staff that make by the hour. Um, but yeah, 15 grand out here. So we went, we went in the house, did the rehab, and then we put it on the market at full market price. And we got an offer in like 24 hours. And what we did is actually we didn't do full market price. We went a little bit lower. Because the point is we didn't want to make get the, we didn't want to go for the home run, but you turned something that was not a wholesale deal into still a short flip. Now we only did it because it just wasn't a lot of work and it just made sense, right? And the only thing it's costing us is this monthly mortgage and the cost of the loan. So we got about 30,000 in the project and 30, 33, 35,000. And then I think we ended up making like 20, 25,000, something like that. Yeah, we put it in a trust because there is a, uh, a clause that on a mortgage, on every mortgage that's due on sale. Yeah, so, but a, a mortgage company can't tell the property owner what to do with the property if it's in their best interest. So when they look at it, we just put it in a trust that's named something after the property of the family. And Either that or make it the property address. Yeah, that's what we do. Uh, 123 Main Street Trust. Um, do something like that, that way at least, you don't want it to trigger the bank. If anything Correct. raises their eyebrows and they say, oh, there might be something wrong here, they're gonna look into it. Mm -hmm. So you wanna make sure that you have something that looks like that. If the clerk's <laughs> name's Smith, you can make it Smith Trust. You still own the trust, it doesn't yep. matter what it is. But have something that makes the bank think that basically all they did was they move it into a trust. and they moved it into a trust, that's it, so. I'm not gonna choose, you can yell though. How do you handle nurturing your, uh, your lead follow-up? You're next. How do, you said, how do you handle your nurturing your lead follow-up? Yeah, like I, had a, I had a deal where it's like, you know, the guy told me he wanted to sell, call him back in a month, he said he was going through a probate, I call him back in a month and it's like, now his attorney's handling it. So how do you, how do you handle like as far as like your follow-up? Like when's it, do I call him before or like you just keep calling him or like, when's a good time to call back? Like how do you nurture those? So, so can you say that again real quick? I heard two things, so I heard part of what you asked. Oh yeah, I was saying, um, how do you like handle your, your follow-up as far as like nurturing your leads? Like you get them on the phone, you, you get the, they address that they want to sell, and you know, you get to that point and it's like, you call them, I called one guy and he was like, yeah, call me back in a month, I'm going through a probate. Mm -hmm. I call him back in a month and then he tells me that, you know, his attorney is now handling him and I, I missed out on the deal basically, so I'm trying to figure out how do I avoid that going forward. Well, I would say you didn't miss out on the deal because the attorney's not going to buy it. Correct. So the attorney's walking him through the probate process and processing all that for him. Most likely it does get a little more complicated because the attorney's going to want to review your contract. They're going to want to basically change something. Even if one attorney wrote that contract, another one wants to change it because they all have different opinions. Right. Um, still nurture that lead because that house is going to sell. Mm -hmm. Now it depends a lot when it comes to probate. What does the probate require? Do they require an auction to take place? What is it? Do they require it to be listed with an agent? There's a lot of different things. So stay on top of it. Um, still follow up. I mean, I'm not saying call the guy every five days, but you know, sometimes, follow up every now and then. Sometimes a quick text message is good too. Mm -hmm. oh, you know? Dude. It was a house phone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if, if it's an older guy and he tells you to call back in a month, make sure you call him back in a month exactly to that day. Yes. So younger generation, a little bit different, right? We're laid back, you don't need to call me, I'll call you, whatever it is. But the old guy and he says, call me in a month or call me in two weeks, you're calling him exactly on that day because then you're going to build his trust. And in return, he's going to keep talking to you. Yeah, he's going to yeah. you know what, this guy actually does what he says. I'm going to work That's what him. I did though. He was like, he was like, now my attorney is handling it. 
So, you know, the attorney, when they get it, they, they refer it out to a realtor or whatever, you know what I mean? But he still well, makes that decision. He still makes the decisions. Okay. And you got to ask him, you know, are you still making it? Even though your attorney's doing this, do you still make the decisions? Your right. attorney just advised you, and more likely it's yes. So just tell him, hey, look, I'm really still interested in, call, in, in, in purchasing this property. You told me to call you in a month. I called you. You know, what do I got to do? What's your attorney's name? I don't know, something. Okay. And, and from there, then you can say, you know what, I'm just going to give you a call. What do you think? Like maybe three, four weeks, every three, four weeks. I'll just check in with you, see if there's any updates. Because if there is, I'm right here. I'm ready to go on it. Got so it. I'll just check in with you. Is that okay? Yeah, okay, perfect. Got yeah, so with difference in demographics, you guys are in totally different markets, both of you. I mm -hmm. can tell by the prices you're talking about. But if you were able to pick any market you could, where would you go, one? And then two, would, is it better to be in a market where it's less expensive versus more expensive? I mean, so not obviously because you might need to do more quantity, but it might be easier to do more quantity, right? Then to do less quantity and get a higher payout. That's, a, that's actually a really good question. So. When it comes to doing more deals versus less deals, so let me explain kind of what, what I hate sometimes, right? We may do a little bit less deals than somebody in a different market, but we get a $100,000 spread. So, but what happens if that $100,000 spread falls apart? That hurts more than a three, four, dollars $5,000 spread falling apart. So really it depends on your preference. I've always been more of a gambler. So I'd prefer to take the chance to get a hundred grand versus you know two five thousand dollar payments. Um, when it comes to market, um, that one I'm going to hold off on answering because we are literally almost finished, going ready to go into that market. So ask me at the next meetup if you come, and I will give you all the details on it. So yeah, I mean, um, I like. As an entrepreneur, I like something that I can continuously do over and over and over again, right? Create systems in a business. Um, and he does a great job in, in this tough market, um, create, doing his, the number of deals he does over and over again. So for me, I mean, I just, the spreads, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just comfortable where we are and we can do it over and over again, but I'm moving into a new market as well too. And to kind of describe that market, I like, me personally, I want things that are on an uptrend, not at the top, because at the, anything up there has to come back down, right? So right now he's worried about when, it's, when it starts to come back down, he's starting to feel that. We haven't felt that, right? So we're still climbing, and then after everything collapses over here, then we'll read the news, and then we'll start collapsing as well, too, after there. So we're, we're reactionary. You guys kind of lead the markets around the country. Um, when it comes to things going up and down, they literally look at markets like LA and say, oh, defaults are going up, this is going up, and they start doing stuff. But I like the middle of the road market. I don't ever want it to be too hot, never want it to be too cold. I want to be able to do whatever, and, and that's kind of, that's why I live in North Carolina. Big fish and small pond. Thank you. Anybody, could you go? For dollars in war zones and areas that are in the beginning stages of gentrification, I noticed that 90 to 95% of those properties in those in that area are are bad. Yeah. Would you guys call everyone every one of those owners, or just look for the properties that have any board of windows on? So first thing to check out with that, uh, there's something called an opportunity zone. Yep. Um, pretty new thing. That's gold. If y'all just research that. So if you look up opportunity zones and look to see if that area is within the opportunity zone, if it is, those areas are actually becoming very popular because there's tax breaks for people buying there to help make those places better. So look that up first, see if that's on there. I mean, things sell 
pretty much anywhere. But let's be honest, if your buyer is going to buy a property and remodel it with three boarded up houses next door, you're going to start having some problems because that thing's not going to sell. It's going to get broken into, uh, probably squatters in that case. So it's worth a shot if you want. Anything's possible. But uh, that's probably going to be one, if it's as bad as you're saying, the buyers will probably go. Well, I've noticed that there's a lot of flipping going on. A lot of yes, get it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. There's a buyer for everything. Literally, if you just take, if you just go on your tax map where you can click and see who owns things, literally take that area and just start clicking. You're gonna see a guy or a couple, whatever. You're gonna see a company that owns like, man, they got six houses just on these three streets. So he is that buyer for that area. He knows it. He he's he's single-handedly changing the neighborhood. So when it's all done, he's gonna make a killing. Yes. I mean, it's just a lot of people do that. Find so, that zip code, pull a list of that zip code, and just skip trace everybody there and start reaching out. Yeah, so, Opportunity Zones, just Google it. Yep. Really yeah. Opportunity Zones. Just look up uh, Opportunity Zones, and there'll be some links that take you to it. There's a lot of them in California. Um, there's probably a lot more out towards you, too. Yeah. So check that out, because you can read through everything they give you, but your buyers get specific tax breaks for holding the property a certain amount of times, because they're finding these areas that are more war zone type of thing, and they want to start revitalizing those areas and making them better. So <coughs> use that. I don't know all the details on it, but... Uh, it's real good. It's basically tax-free money. You don't pay money on any gains. And you can take money from gains and put it in there, and, and when that sells, you pay no gains. Yeah, let's go over here. Um, do you have any suggestions on selling portfolios? We have actually gotten three portfolios in the past month or so, but we have been unsuccessful in actually finding buyers. And they were actually in different states, too. We got one in Detroit, one in Texas, and uh, the last one was in Cleveland. So, any suggestions? I mean, portfolios definitely, people are going to want them. Um, your challenge is what you just said, is if there's houses in multiple states within that portfolio, that makes it more challenging. So if the houses were all in one state in the portfolio, that would be a little bit easier. Um, yes, actually the houses for... She's saying different states. You found, you oh, got different portfolios. So all the portfolio is in one state. Yes. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. But keep in mind, you probably want to make sure you contract each one of them separately. Okay. So you always want to make sure you do that. Yeah, I mean, as long as buyers will buy if it's a good deal. I mean, yeah. you can sell it to three different buyers or four different buyers. It doesn't even really matter. Do you think you got a good deal? We think we did. Um, on one of them was like almost like a seventy thousand dollars spread, but just having it—it it was just in a uh, isolated area in Texas. So I think I actually sent it over to Mike. Mike kind of saw it. Uh, who's so who's do you see who's buying in the area? Did you be able to try to look that up? No, we haven't. And then look at LLC like LLCs and corporations because you have institutional funds that like will buy buy up stuff as well too and start like because they like portfolios. Yeah. What we should probably do is just connect you with someone close to that area. That's probably gonna be the best way to go. Um, especially if you're saying if it's outskirt versus like city, mm -hmm. it's not you know, it's easier just to connect with someone on the ground there. So um, I'll see how close Johnny is to that. Uh, Johnny Moore, you can look him up. Um, he does a lot in Texas. Good guy. He'll probably be able to help you out too. So let's let's see where it's at and go from there. You have the email on that. Uh, resend that to me, please. I will. Thank you. I was about to say, when do you work, at? man? All these emails you get. When do you work? Right. Exactly. <laughs> we have probably about three minutes left. Oh, so. do we? Yeah. How would you do, how would you deal with a motivated seller uh, with an off-market property? And um, he has tenants 
basically that's behind three months. He wants to that's perfect. Him. Love that. that is, that's a gold mine right there in front of him. <laughs> I, think, I think this estimate is probably like uh, two seats to three. He said, oh, like two, three, I believe, around the range. But then he still got to pay the, the back. What, what, what are you behind on? Getting a little tight up there. Uh, it just went like. Yeah. You got me all excited. I'm like, let's go. Uh, yeah, that's, that's going to be a little tight, but keep in mind that is his estimate. So the sad thing is about his estimates, a lot of times they're high. So um, it could be that really what he owes is. How long has he had it? It's high until you go to the I'm not even sure he got another property now that he stays in. He's in the military. So. He's ready to get off of it, you know, but he still got tenants. Yeah, I mean, that, probably should sell with a realtor if it's there. But first, check those numbers. So make sure you you know the ARV. Don't go off his estimate. Um, if the ARV is potentially three something, then and fantastic. and 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 one more tip: if he's desperate enough and the numbers are, you know, maybe, let's just say he owes a little bit less and the numbers are a little bit higher, just because it's not a wholesale deal, you have other buy and hold guys that would love. If he's in the military, he probably got it great rate on something um, if he's desperate and probably can't afford both homes especially because the tenants are not paying it can be a sub two deal that you can sell the sub two to somebody else because somebody else is only going to look at it for a cash performing asset that they don't have to put you know they don't have to buy it you know so there's there's other ways to analyze it and I know people that you, you can make a deal if the numbers make sense it doesn't have to be a wholesale the thing to look at though is make sure that it's not, if it's in rent control, it's going to be a lot more different. Or oh, you guys got all types of crazy shit out here. What's that? It's in the state of Texas. Oh, it's in Texas. Oh. Just pull tenants out. Yeah, pull them out. We're pretty much out of time. So you guys here that are not in my meetup, check out SoCal Real Estate Wholesalers. We do this once every 30 to 45 days. Um, How much does it cost? It's all free. So we do, uh, do the role playing. We'll see a lot of different scenarios. You guys have the ability to talk to us about uh, what you want to see. Obviously, we do a lot of cool stuff. We have Max at one. Uh, we had Jalen White at one last time. Uh, we're going to have some visitors come into the other one, some buyers that are going to talk to us about what it is that they want to actually see out of some of these meetups. I'm going to have our escrow officer come into one of them to talk about what you guys need to look for as far as escrow costs, title insurance, things like that that you need to be aware of. Uh, but ultimately, we get together and really just try to answer questions and have a good time. So uh, check that out. When's your, when's your course coming out, the course? Uh, Mike and I are building a course. Uh, that is probably going to be a couple months. But the, the real thing is that he, he's doing this because he just wants to. Like he's creating a community here in the SoCal. Now, yeah, he may benefit from knowing all of you, but you still benefit from knowing him. Right, so it's like a give and a take. Like, there's not anything crazy behind what, why we do this. I mean, I didn't fly out here just for a meetup. I mean, a, a pop up, but you know, it's still taking time out of my day. I had to drive all the way from downtown LA to come. You know, so just, you know, it's important to be around people like this, and that's why I hang out with Scott. And I'm, and I'm glad this is the first pop up that I did less talking than, than the guy next to me. Remember, it's always important to be the dumbest guy in the room. I'll be honest, Scott knows more than I do. So that's why I talk less when I'm around him. You get it? So I don't always have to be the guy in the room. I'm learning as he's talking to you and, and so on and so forth. So that's why you know, it's important to come together. And the real most important part about all of this is come, you guys coming together. I don't know how many people are in here right now, but you're gonna, this is the important side of it. This is now like your, your real estate family. This is, this is like 
You know, you don't have to go to a traditional RIA to have this type of synergy. And you guys can help each other with deals down the road. You might, you just never know. One of you might have a buyer that you have a property for. Somebody might want that piece of land in Paris. You just never know. Now you have X amount of teammates here. So take advantage of that. Exchange numbers, talk to people, even when I'm gone. And when Scott's gone, shake hands, you know, talk to each other. Thank you for listening to the Wholesaling Houses Elite Podcast with Max Maxwell. Make sure to tune in next week to see what elite wholesaler will have in the hot seat.